Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you get an opportunity, go to Twitter and uh, upload your take at 814-NEXT. Go to Facebook and like our page at Next on WQLN with Marcus Atkinson. And if you get an opportunity, tune in every Sunday, fourth Sunday of the month, 91.3 FM, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. So today we recap the hottest stories of the year in 2018. The first story is a story that I wanted to bring you quite some time ago, but I was waiting for the perfect opportunity. I've gone to my fair share of luncheons at the Rotary. And, you know, on several occasions you go and they have this speaker and people ask questions. On this one particular occasion, they had to rent a larger room. The room was packed because we brought two guests on to talk about their book that was then turned into a documentary series that had the whole company enthralled. And of course, we're talking about the Pizza Bomber series. And if you could, as you can see on the screen, we've had um, you know, a book written about this issue by two local authors. And Jerry Clark and Ed Pelletella, Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's shocking heist. So you can see the other three no novels that they've written I'm very excited to have these guys come on and talk about um, this story, the way it's caught this wild momentum over 2018. It's been one of the hottest documentaries on Netflix. So we welcome to the show Mr. Jerry Clark, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Gannon University and retired FBI agent. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And my friend Ed Pelletella with Erie Times News. Ed, welcome to the show. So where do we begin, man? This thing was, this, this caught on like wildfire. First of all, talk about the meteoric rise of the documentary. Then we'll backtrack to the book. Were you shocked, surprised at all of its success? You know, I, I have to say that when, when they said it was coming out, and me, they, I meant the producers, they said, you know what, this, this may be a, a game changer for you and, and for the other investigators. And I thought, you know, what's that mean exactly? Uh, and it, it was. I mean, it's opened and changed more things in, in what I do in the day and, and are working together with Ed uh, Palatella. And I'll tell you, it has just a meteoric rise. I knew Netflix obviously is very popular, and, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it went to places I had no idea mm -hmm. of where it would go. So let's take it back from a reporter's standpoint. When this story first hit, obviously there's some very unusual elements to it. From your years of reporting, did, did the reporters believe that this was something special that would capture national attention at that time? Well, I think right out of the gate, with the, with the crime of Brian Wells having a bomb locked in his neck, it was so unusual that we figured it would be, it would become a national story, and it did right away. I mean, there was national media all over the place. I mean, it was on, in the New York Times, Washington Post, so. But then, as with most stories, once you got into the grind stage where they were trying to figure out what was going on, the national media went away. Mm -hmm. So then it was kind of our story again for a while, but then when the indictments came and the conviction it became a national story. Again. So it was, I mean, just the unique nature of the crime made it something that everyone was interested in. And it was a mystery, too. Mm -hmm. We didn't know who did it. It took a while to solve it. So. Mm -hmm. so Pretty much from the beginning, we knew it was going to be big, but never, certainly never anything like this. Talk about the genesis of this becoming a book. Uh, who made that decision? When did it come about? Tell us about that a little bit. Well, you know, and really just to recapture one split second of what Ed was talking about, the reason I think the fascination of this story took hold was the fact that it was captured on film. So 
you know, to actually see the detonation, see him sitting in the parking lot, see him conversing with the Pennsylvania State Police, it just totally captured and fascinated uh, folks. And you can go back and see it, it to this day. The second part was it never really had happened before where an individual had walked into a bank wearing a live device that right. detonates during the course of the robbery, resulting in their death. I mean, it, in the FBI, that just had never happened right. before. So those two things, I think, rose this to a unique category. And that made it, um, in the FBI, major case level. And a major case in the FBI is a rare thing. And this was major case number 203. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's why I think uh, today, even now, we're still talking about it. So if I can stick with you from a law enforcement standpoint, yes. just as a viewer, right. the casual nature, respectfully, the casual nature of Mr. Wells as he's in this bank. I mean, he's got this cane gun. He's got a lollipop in his mouth. And he didn't look very stressed in the bank. What was your reaction from a law enforcement standpoint when you just saw his physical posture during this bank heist? It's a great point, uh, Marcus. When we saw him and his conversation and the witnesses in the bank all saying how cavalier he was, how casual, just as you described, he reached in the basket, took a lollipop out. I mean, all things that would indicate, boy, that doesn't seem like somebody who has a, a live device that they know is active around their neck. And I still believe this to this day, he never knew that it was real all the way until the end. So he, he unfortunately, if you follow the evidence in the case, he definitely knew these people, but they tricked him and they, they told him it wasn't real. And then at the end, there was the, the ultimate surprise. But all investigators are standing on scene thinking this has to be another hoax, you know, bomb bank robbery. Mm -hmm. So Ed, from a from a reporter standpoint, just the analyzation of what was seen and everything else, what was your reaction? Well, I mean, we thought initially we thought maybe it was a suicide. Um, it was just it was just so crazy that I mean, part of it was just how. Why did this even happen? I'm just trying to puzzle, you know, put all the puzzles together from the very beginning. But it was just so, so strange. I mean, I think initially we were like everyone else, just trying to figure out what happened. And then his story, his initial story. Why wouldn't you say who did this to you when you know that you're gonna die? I mean, why wouldn't you give it up? So it was just very. And then it just kept getting weirder. I mean, then three days later, Robert Panetti dies of a drug overdose. He was Brian Wells' closest friend, fellow pizza delivery driver. Right. And then, and then, lo and behold, the end of uh, the end of September, James Roden's body is found in a freezer in Bill Rothstein's house, and Marjorie Deal Armstrong is charged. So, you know, then it was just, it was just, just trying to keep all the stories straight right, yeah. <laughs> was kind of was kind of difficult. One of the things I hadn't heard yet is give us the timeline for this. So this guy who did who produced the documentary, from what I understand, it was about 15 years he followed this case, if I'm not mistaken. Is there any kind of relationship between you three guys? Give us a timeline. between You wrote two books on this. Mm -hmm. Those two books, him doing this documentary, where does all of that crisscross if they do at all? Well, he initially came to Erie uh, while I was still active FBI uh, running the case. Um, he was trying to get some information. He would try to interview some people, including myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't talk to him then because I was active and the case was ongoing. Once the case, uh, was adjudicated and she went to trial and she was found guilty and, uh, Ken Barnes pled guilty. 
we were able to then start having a discussion. So initially, Jason Wick and I, the special agent from ATF who worked the case with me, began talking to them about the story. Mm -hmm. And as we started talking, uh, they wanted to stick on a slant that they had in the story that Brian Wells didn't know these people and was actually selected and he had no involvement. Mm -hmm. And we kept saying, well, that's not where the evidence in the case leads us. Unfortunately, he was murdered in a horrific fashion, but, and, and I still never forget the family and what they went through to have to deal with that. Uh, but at the same time, you had to know that he knew these people and they tricked him. So that's when we sort of went our separate ways and then they kept going down the tracks um, to sell the documentary. Mm -hmm. And so, Ed, as you're, you're writing this book, so which book came out first? The Pizza Bomber book came out first. Okay. And then how long before the second one was written? Um, Pizza Bomber came out in 2012. And then um, the Marjorie Neil Armstrong book came out last year. Mm -hmm. So, and then we wrote one book in between too. And you run book one book in between. Right. Did he refer to did the producers refer to these books at all with making this documentary? Were there? Because I know one of the questions that I have personally, and I've heard other people ask, were there some? Did they have the option any kind of rights from you guys or anything with this documentary? Were you tied to that at all? No, not in that regard. I mean, we the, the book has been optioned for a movie, and it's still under option. I saw that on on. I didn't see that, but I saw on Twitter that somebody said that. This needs to be made into a movie. They right. actually suggested Kathy Bates oh, play well, Marjorie Deer. Yeah, we've heard Dear that Austin. a number of times, right? So, but so our book's been optioned for a movie, and it's being the screenplay is being written now. But wow. in terms of the documentary, they didn't. I mean, they interviewed me, they interviewed Jerry, but we never had a we never had a production agreement or anything like that with them. I mean, they I think they referred to the book, and, and certainly our book sales went. They went through the roof right. after this appeared, which was nice. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of uh, they just went, they went their way and we went our way. So we had a difference of opinion, like Jerry said, as to where the evidence led, mm -hmm. which is fine. I mean, right. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this had a ripple effect. You, I mentioned uh, Trooper Brian Arrington. You can see him in the documentary. Uh, Marshall Piccinini. I right. uh, saw Scott Bremner's on national television behind us. It's had a ripple effect and really put, you know, Erie in the spotlight in a different manner where this was concerned. So, um, I know it changed your lives a great deal, but give us the best examples of how your life changed from the success of this documentary and thus skyrocketing even book sales. Right, like uh, you both mentioned, the book sales were uh, tremendously affected. We had already had a very successful run, but um, we now are in our ninth printing of that edition uh, of that book, so it, the, the printings just keep happening, so that's great. The thing that... Uh, you know, I'm an eerie guy, so I, I've been away for all those years in the FBI and traveling. But when I got back home, you know, a lot of people know me just because I'm an eerie guy and, and sort of do some media stuff uh, related to, to my work. But now I, I can go places and people say, hey, you you're that. You. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, mm -hmm. that, that completely blows me away because, uh, you know, I'm just Jerry from Erie, you know, who is an investigator who you know, worked on a case that I thought was, um, you know, uh, uh, the most difficult challenge I could ever have in my life. And it just affected me in so many different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. It stretched me uh, out of my comfort zone in a lot of ways, you know, public speaking or uh, talking to people about it or being challenged about it, whatever it turns out. Uh, and, and, 
I got to say, it's improved me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, and Jerry, give this some thought as well. I'll start with Ed. Mm -hmm. But just that, that head scratching moment as you're looking into this whole thing, the, the moment that really stuck in your mind the most when you ran across it, what would that moment be? Because there were a lot of different junctures in this story. You know, obviously from Erie, I was living out of town at the time when it aired. Mm -hmm. I watched the documentary, I watched it twice. I thought, my goodness, there are so many twists and turns. What was an element of this story that just, you know, kept you up at night a little bit thinking? I think once Marjorie Deal Armstrong was charged, that kind of really made me wonder what is going on here. Um, because most, I mean, she has a big history in Erie. I mean, in terms of um, she was acquitted of murdering her boyfriend in the 80s, so everyone kind of knew about her. And then when it turns out that Ronan's death was so similar to the death of her first boyfriend, Bob Thomas. I mean, right down to shooting him while he was sleep, shooting both of them while they were sleeping, and then what she wanted to do afterwards. That was really, that was a big twist that mm -hmm. I don't think anyone saw coming. Jerry, what was that moment for you? I think there's a couple of them because it was just so complex. The, the first would be the 318 on August 28, 2003, when the detonation happened. The, the oh my God moment of what I just saw, because that that was just, you know, and I had seen a lot of ways you can die, quite honestly, because I was on a fugitive task force. So violent crime for me was everything. That's all I did, bank robberies, kidnappings, mm. fugitives, anything related to violent crime, drug deals. That was one of those oh my goodness moments. The other one was the opening of the freezer was to see another, you know, dead body in the freezer uh, was another one of those moments. Another moment I remember was Marjorie coming, um, Marjorie Deal Armstrong at Muncie, the state correctional institution mm -hmm. where they bring her down to us and we're sitting in a room and they bring her in. And when she first walked in the room and I was an eerie guy, so I had actually had her on parole uh, for a very short period of time when I was a parole officer in Erie, which was the first law enforcement job I had. And, um, her walking in and, and actually seeing her again was mm -hmm. one of those moments. So there was a couple in this case mm -hmm. for me. You made a comparison um, with Marjorie Deal Armstrong. You talked a little bit about Eileen Wernos, that that movie was made, Monster, Monster, starred Charlize Theron. Right. And just the rarity of Marjorie Deal Armstrong as a quote-unquote serial killer. Right. If you unpack that a little bit for our listeners and our viewers, because I thought that was fascinating when you touched on that before. Yeah, that's, I mean, people don't, and as a law enforcement guy, uh, an investigator, to get to interview somebody like Marjorie Deal Armstrong is a real rarity. I mean, she's a, a female serial killer, so more than two dead uh, people at her hands with a cooling off period in between. And that's really what the FBI definition of a serial killer is. And she had had at least five deaths around her that she was responsible for. And here's the difference from her and maybe some other females who killed mm -hmm. was she used the violent means. So a, a gun, you know, most females who kill use nonviolent means, suffocation, poisoning. poisoning. Exactly. Mm -hmm. She and Eileen Wernos were the two that used a weapon like that. And so uh, that puts her in a unique category. Mm -hmm. And so to stay with you for just another second on mm -hmm. this, so in that respect, it was kind of, and you hate to say it like this, but per your profession, it was kind of this um, unique case study opportunity. Huh. 
Marcus, it's like hitting the lottery for a, an investigator to interview somebody like that because, again, they're so rare and so few uh, far between. So you get to interview. I interviewed her nine times. I had her in my car. I had her driving around. We had her at the jail. You know, I've had other moments with her where, I mean, those are some of the most unique pieces of information you could ever do, sit and try to elicit and solicit information from someone like her. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. So Ed, so you two wrote two books. Second one was about Marjorie Dale Armstrong in particular. Right. What was the impetus for that, Ed? Was it because she was this unique figure? Is that what that was about? That was it. That she, we just thought that she deserved more attention, singular attention because of her, because of her uniqueness as a female serial killer. And just the whole... Going back to all her other cases and her in her psychological psychological psychiatric history, so we decided to dive into that. So the second book focuses more on her individually rather than the case as a whole. Mm -hmm. so. the, the relationship with Rosnine that was kind of an interesting dynamic. I mean, for me, it, it almost felt like there was this cat and mouse type vibe to him. Oh yeah, that would be. I think that's that's a that's great characterization. Yeah. That they were always, Jerry and I always laughed. They would both sleep with one eye open. Okay. I mean, they were always kind of watching what the other one was doing because they were, they were trying to outwit, outwit the other. And I think they were both afraid of, um, each other. I mean, we think that Rothstein, the reason that he called the police on, Roden's body is because he was worried that Neil Armstrong was going to come after him with a shotgun next. So, um, but yeah, there was that strange dynamic. I think they were truly in love um, at one point, and maybe all the way they were always in love, but certainly they were engaged to be married in the 70s, and they were very close, and they still stayed in touch. Oh, yeah, their favorite movie was Love Story. and <laughs> um, Yeah, so it's, it's quite, and she, she said he was what, Jerry? A young Elvis. A better look looking, like a, than, yeah. yeah he better, looked like a young Elvis. In, 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 the, like in the documentary, <laughs> I mean, when you see him, yeah. I mean, those photos were incredible of him when he was young. He's got the sunglasses on and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's really a, it's really kind of a devilish love story between the two of them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the hoarding, yeah. all of these things, there's just a lot of psychological things that come into play. But I think one thing that was very obvious that these two were extremely intelligent people. Right. It, it brought to mind the old saying that, you know, genius and insanity are, are two sides of the same coin. Right, right. You know, Jared, what, what did you think about that when you sat down and talked to both of those individuals in terms of the intellectual prowess? Listen, both were, you know, as smart as any uh, person that you'll ever talk to. The difference is being criminally savvy and being really intelligent aren't always congruent. They're not always together. And, and they were both really intelligent, but not very criminally savvy. So if you look at the whole bank robbery scheme and the scavenger hunt to get the keys, and it, it just wasn't a good plan overall. The nine pages of notes uh, for bank robbery notes, um, they were paranoid of each other. Like you were talking, I remember, um, Stockton, who was the wanted fugitive living with Rothstein, at the time we ended up interviewing him, and he said to me that Rothstein said at one point, "Hey, I'm going to I'm going to see Marge right now. If I'm not back in 15 minutes, she killed me." <laughs> so it was that kind of paranoia that was going on with them. Wow! And so you're you're writing you're writing this book, and you know what's what's the end game now? And the the question marks. That's what I wanted to ask you. If you can, what are the question marks still in your head? So you watch the documentary. Many people are asking, you know, what's up with this? What's up with that? 
What are the questions that you still have about this case that in your mind is still unanswered? Ed, we'll start with you. Well, I think the big one is when did Wells, when did he get involved in this? I mean, we know he was involved in it, but what was the sequence of that? I mean, who talked to him? Who met with him? How much did he know ahead of time? I think that would be really fascinating to, to know. I mean, that would be probably the, the biggest mystery to me. And then, and then just with um, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Bill Rothstein, what, I mean, I believe Rothstein called the police because he was afraid of dying, but what was that dynamic like? What type of agreement did they have? Um, what, the total picture of what happened at the tower site when Wells had the um, bomb strapped to his neck, what, what was the full outlay of what happened? We know some of that because Ken Barnes testified under oath, but that would be really fascinating to go back in time and see that unfold. Mm -hmm. But those would be the main things. Jerry, the question marks. Sure. I, I, the biggest one for me is that last site that Brian Wells was to go to on the notes. If you follow the notes, he was to go on a series of stops. And that last stop, somebody got to before we did. And that was at the McCain Township sign on I-79. And that's where people had seen Marjorie Deal Armstrong going the wrong way on the highway. And she obviously got to that spot before we did. But I always wonder, what was to happen at that site? Was he going to get another note that led him somewhere else? Or was that the last place he was supposed to go? So that, I think we have the right people. I think everyone that's involved, we got. But some of the minutiae on the meetings and how this thing was to end, according to the notes, still sort of baffle me a little bit. All right. So before we bring in the next segment, what's next for this project? Do you foresee a third book on the subject or, you know, what's what's next for you guys? Well, we have another book coming out on fugitives, which will be coming out in the fall. We just finished that manuscript. So that's what's next for us. And then we're still working on the movie project with the Pizza Bomber book. And we have some television things that we're working on but I don't foresee at this point another book on the pizza bomber case but you never know mm -hmm. yeah you never know if we update even the the pizza right, bomber right. book itself to sort of conclude to where we are now mm -hmm. uh, we definitely have some uh, movie outstanding as, as Ed said a feature film and then we are working on some television projects that aren't even related to this case but now other people want other projects that, that we had worked on, uh, me specifically in the FBI. So mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at doing those with them. Okay, so the movie, they optioned the rights, but did they, are they also bringing you on as consultants for the? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So we'll help every part to make it as realistic as we can and keep the true line to it. But they're focused more now on Marjorie and all the death around her mm -hmm. as opposed to just the pizza bomber case right so that being part of what she did in her life uh not just the only thing so she's had so much there they said let's focus on her right. almost like eileen wernos in monster mm. well if they can land kathy bates for that that oh, would be huge that would be terrific my goodness well guys thank you uh thank you. you're you're listening to and watching next on wqlm we're going over the uh, hottest shows for the, the hottest stories for 2018. And boy, this has been a good one. There's several other stories. We're bringing a few other guests here. Several other stories that have been pivotal and key in, um, in the community over the last few months. And, um, you know, we're going to bring in a couple people first. We're bringing C. Brown. C, come on in here. Let's think about Facebook Live. You can shoot from the hip a little bit. C, come on in and have a seat. Let's go on. 
All right. And we will bring in Kevin Flowers as well. Kevin, welcome to the show. C. Brown is a hip-hop artist. Kevin Flowers is also with Times News. Thanks for having us. Reporter. Welcome to the show. All right, so just on that last segment real quick, um, you guys did this pizza bomber thing. Yeah. Give us your quick reaction before we move on to other stories. I just recently finished that documentary. Okay. And, um, like, I'm, I'm amazed by it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just so intricate and, like, how several stories just tied into one another. Like, it's, it's crazy to see, like, your city on Netflix and to bring back that situation. You know what I'm saying? Because I remember when that was going on. Like, I was in class. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fascinating, that, that story. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's definitely, like, a very good mystery. And uh, I don't know, man. It, it, had, the, it had the city watching. Mm. Kevin. Same thing. Uh, well, I was working at the Times at the time. I actually worked on some of those stories with Ed, especially at the beginning, although everybody knows he did, you know, the incredible heavy lifting mm -hmm. on that piece. And from the beginning, I mean, some of the stuff we worked on in the beginning, you just knew that this was a unique case. It was, it was something that, that we hadn't seen. And, and it was, as Ed pointed out before, it was a mystery. And that, I think, is it was part of the appeal and part of the hold on people was mm -hmm. that it was just this, this unraveling, unfolding mystery that, that nobody really knew how it was going to end up. I mm -hmm. mean, with, with some fascinating characters in it. I got you. Okay, so all of you guys do a great deal of writing. You two, obviously, for the Times, you do some freelance writing, mm -hmm. you know, for the Erie Reader. So, we, you know, we want to just kind of do some open dialogue on the best stories or the most, the standout stories of 2018. See, we'll start with you. When you think of 2018, the story that jumps out to you would be what? Um, shoot, aside from that pizza bomber story, I would have to say uh, Corey Cook on Good Morning America. Uh, I think that was very big for Erie. You know, we've been bashed you know, nationally before. And uh, to be highlighted on a positive note was like a great thing for us Erieites. You know, it was good to see that. It was good to receive that kind of coverage for what we do. And it just shows people like, you know, Erie is and can be a positive place. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of us out here trying to do things and trying to do positive things. So I, I really feel like that was a good deal for us. Mm, and that's consistent. You did a video where you narrated yeah. that highlighted the positives of Erie. Talk about that real quick while we have you here. Yeah, well, so um, CNN was uh, pretty much down talking Erie and you know, not saying the best things about us. And a group of us, shout out to the uh, Film Society, we came together and decided to, to do a rebuttal and uh, they signed me on to narrate it and do some co-writing as well. And uh, I got the opportunity to do, the, to do the voiceover for it. And it wasn't to be combative, but it was just saying like, hey, you know, this is your story, but here's the truth about what's really going on in Erie. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, we're, we're filled with a lot of entrepreneurs, hardworking people. There's a lot of great things going on, especially when the weather is nice. So we just wanted to show that side of Erie to the people who uh, probably saw the CNN coverage and had that mindset like, you know, Erie is not a great place. So we wanted to change the mindsets and give people another way to look at us. And um, I, was, I was just happy to be a part of it because, mm -hmm. you know, I care about Erie. Like I'm born and raised here, I'm proud of that. And just to be able to be on that platform and to speak my piece, as well as everybody else's who was a part of that project, it was just, it was mm -hmm. awesome. Okay, so I can understand that because if you think about it, right, when Erie's gone national, it has almost always been over something negative. Always. So the story of, of Corey Cook and, and the, the Joaquin Center, Elijah Lyons, I mean, mm -hmm. just shining that positive light on the good work being done right. in Erie. I can, I can understand that completely. Kevin, 
2018, what story stands out in your mind? Well, to me, it's a continuing story, and it's the economic and community development of Erie, whether you take, you know, Erie refocused, uh, what the EDDC is trying to do with, with downtown revitalization, uh, how the opportunity zones are going to play out in 2019. The future of Erie in terms of economic and community development and, you know, eliminating or reducing poverty, taking care of uh, blight, those kinds of things. To me, that's the biggest story that we have going right now. And there's a lot of different components coming together to kind of try to tackle those things. Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that we're putting a lot of resources in at the Times News, and I just think that's, that's the biggest story going right now. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, what has been the response of the everyday person when you talk about economic revitalization? Because there still feels like a small gap of, you know, John Doe and Erie, having a feeling of things turn, of the tide turning. What, what, what's been your experience where that's concerned? I think that when you go deep into a neighborhood and you talk to people, their their concerns are going to be immediate. A lot of times, their concerns are going to be about what's going on on their block. Is there crime? Is there trash? Is there blight? You know, their particular quality of life. It, I think a lot of people are trying to connect dots for people to show them that if we make these large-scale improvements, this is how it's going to improve or, or could improve your particular situation in your particular neighborhood. And I, I think that's the nexus is trying to be drawn there. Mm -hmm. So we've got the, uh, the Good Morning America segment. We've got the economic revitalization of Erie. Ed, the big story for 2018 for you would be what? Well, I, I think two of them. The, probably the biggest one would be the, the clergy sex abuse mm. scandal in the in the... Catholic Church in Pennsylvania, specifically in the Diocese of Erie. Um, and a big part of that was the response of the diocese, Bishop Persico, Lawrence Persico. He, he was way out front of it, and he's been really kind of a national model on how he's responded. Um, I mean, the victims, it's, I mean, it's just a horrible situation all the way around. I mean, we've been covering this since, you know, the early 2000s, and now it just kind of all exploded. So you have all the victims, and um, you know, the diocese released its list of names in April, which was unprecedented. Then we had the grand jury report in August. So there's just so many stories there. But I would say um, that that story, but the lead character in that is definitely the bishop and how he's responding. And then just kind of to dovetail off what Kevin said, I think the Erie School District continuing to get out of its financial crisis. It got the, the $14 million. It was allocated, or the legislation came last year, but the money was allocated this year. So we're seeing that recovery right now. Mm -hmm. And um, so that kind of dovetails into what Kevin's been working on because everyone says how much the, you know, how the, how the schools go, the city goes. And I don't know how Kevin keeps all these economic development initiatives in his head because I can't even follow them. There's well, so many. And, and, and to follow up on that, the, the school district situation and you know, how they're managing this financial crisis and the, the fact that they have this state administrator, you know, that's one of the tentacles of all this because if the school district doesn't get strong, it hurts the city as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it can lead to people leaving the city, uh, people not having faith in the school district. My 13-year-old daughter goes to school in the Erie School District, so I have a vested interest in this. I know Ed's kids went to Erie School District schools yeah. as well, so there's a definite major connection there and a reason that we should all want to see the school district do well. Mm -hmm. well while we're talking about it, I may as well ask what your thoughts were on Pat Howard's column that dealt with the diagnosis that 
that this, uh, this overseer is putting forth. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Ed's done most of the major coverage on that. I think that Pat was spot on in terms of pointing out that this financial administrator, the state has the final decision here. And the culture within the, the Erie School District, whether it be from, you know, the administrators to the school board on down, have to see kind of the forest through the trees here. And that's, that's kind of what Pat was getting at, that there are going to be some major tough decisions that meet, need to happen. And some of them could end up being mandated by the state, if you want to follow up on right. that. Right. And then, I mean, Kevin and I have talked about this a lot, that anyone who would expect the school district was going to get $14 million in additional right. state aid Absolutely. and not have strings attached... I mean, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was such an unprecedented, I mean, it's one of the, the single largest adjustment to school funding outside of Philadelphia in state history. So for anyone to think, well, we're just going to be able to do what we want with it, I mean, that's not going to happen. So now, I, I mean, I think Pat made a great point, and I think the school board realizes that they have some leeway here, but not a lot. But at the same time, I, I mean, I think you have an outsider come in and taking a hard look at things and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Kevin and I have talked a lot about that with the city finances. Maybe that's what the city needs. They need someone to come in from the outside and look at things that maybe no one wants to touch for political reasons or whatever and, and say, hey, you need to do this or this is a recommendation. And Kevin, you can talk about that more, but they kind of had that with that yeah, Act 49 consultant years ago, but it was never it was never to the statutory level that it is. Correct, and that's what I was going to point out. The, the city now, is, Joe Schember's administration is talking about bringing in uh, the early intervention program now, which, which advises cities on their finances. It's not that Act 47, which is basically a form of receivership, mm -hmm. which would be more of a mandated situation like the, the school district is dealing with, mm -hmm. but they would make specific recommendations, bring in a consultant to long-term manage finances, deal with structural deficits, things like that. But they wouldn't be forced to make those calls even if an early intervention report came out and said you need to do this this and this you know it would still be up to the city that's kind of that's kind of the problem with a situation like that because it's not forcing them to make those decisions but it's going to point out some hard choices that need to be made and some of the members of city council are already starting to talk about that. one last question and see we're going to swing back around to you in a second mm -hmm. in your opinions what was the i don't know if you can point to any one particular thing but in your minds, where do you think a lot of this fin the, the financial downfall of the district started? So at one point, we were looking at $24 million in debt, right? Was that the genesis? Is that the nexus of this whole thing? Where did this thing start to spiral out of control, in your opinions? I think there's a number of factors, but part of it was that the way the district was budgeting for a while, where they were, they were, they were using grants for operating expenses. So after the the crash in 2008 and the TAMP grants and all that from the feds, the school district, instead of using that money for like capital improvements or, you know, repair buildings, they were using it for to hire people, which, I mean, that money is not going to be there after so many years. So that got them in a hole and then the, um, and they weren't budgeting properly and then I think the charter school expenses have really, I mean, 20, almost $24 million a year and that um, that's really put a that's really put a strain on the district's finances. And that, that, I'm not saying anything about charter schools, whether they're good or bad, but that's a reality, mm -hmm. that you have $24 million a year that used to be within the school district's control is now 
um, you know, being sent to charter schools. Okay, and so thank you for that, that detailed opinion. Um, I know this is a story that's on the forefront of many people's minds right now. See, let's go to one, since you threw out a feel-good story, mm. let me throw out one of my favorite feel-good <laughs> like stories <laughs> for 2018, man, the rise of James Conner. You know, there's just a special yeah. kind of pride that wells up in us, man, when we see this young man on television, grew up with his mom, you know, Kelly grew up with his dad, Glenn, just good people, yep. and Absolutely. talk about the, the rise of James Conner a little bit from your perspective. Um, I think it's just another... Once again, another highlight story for Erie PA. You know what I mean? Like, to, to talk about it on a wider scale, you know, Erie has been so negative-minded. We've, we've always felt like we had nothing to be proud of. You know, you hear that in general talk every day. So mm -hmm. to see somebody from Erie, you know, drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers, doing his thing, on the rise, on the come up, it's like, wow, like, there is something special here. You know, there is something special about this place. So that's what James Conner represent to me. You know, like, the 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 pride and the joy of Erie. And it's good to see him. Like you have people who aren't even Pittsburgh fans rooting for James Conner. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's, and it's starting to bring uh, more people together. And I don't even think he realizes like what he stands for and what he represents. So it's good mm -hmm. to see him. Like I saw him in the, uh, the preseason game, his first preseason game. And I was just happy to see an Erie cat out there doing his thing. Mm -hmm. And it just gave me hope as a young individual. You know what I'm saying? And it gave me hope for everybody else. Like we can be, um, you know, positive and, and successful figures if we want to be, you know. So hopefully with James Conner and and other people that will come along, um, it will just break that monotonous mindset of, you know, there's nothing here mm -hmm. and, and you can't come out of the city and you can't be anything. Like, there's your prime example right there, right there. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, when I, I spoke to his mom, Kelly, one time, and I talked about the movie Rudy, mm. and I said, Kelly, I want you to think about something. Here's a guy who never made it to the NFL, who sat the bench pretty much his entire career at, at Notre Dame, and the movie was about the heart of the young man. That was what yeah. was so inspiring. This was before James was even the starting running back. Mm. I said, if, if he never starts, his story is incredible. And so just like, Ed, you guys optioned the rights to your story, I'm hoping that James options the rights to his story to somebody. I know you're a Steeler fan, Kevin. You know, touch on this story a little bit. Well, I, I mean, for... What he has been able to overcome in his life, you know, medically, uh, he, he was injured last year, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, sec second third of the season. And for him to take advantage, you know, in a good way with the Le'Veon Bell situation and to be able to to next man up in a huge way, I think that's part of the appeal, too. I think that's why so many people have 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 really gravitated towards that story. But but for him to overcome what he overcame medically and to be – because I've, I've said it many times as a football fan, I feel like if he hadn't gone through what he had gone through medically at Pitt, I think mm -hmm. he would have been a first-round draft pick. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who knows? But he has maximized his opportunity and he that really can make has. everybody in this region proud. I, the thing that reminds me, and we'll, we'll move on to the next story, but the thing that – when I look at him, I see the same thing in – Bob Sanders when he was playing at the time. There's just mm -hmm. a fighter in James. Right. And you feel like, okay, if you give this young man an opportunity, get out of his way because he's going to make the most of it. You know, Bob was that kind of player. Mm -hmm. And so just hats off to, to everything that James is doing right Absolutely. now. We're really proud of him. Ed, we'll swing it to you. You know, we saw in less than a year's time what one mayor can do for the, you know, just the, the, the soul of a community, you know, the the psyche of a community, this mayor has really take policy out and everything else. 
this mayor has kind of restored hope to Erie once again and re-engaged a community that many of which felt unengaged for a lot of years. Talk about um, the Joe Schimber administration and his first year in office a little bit. Well, I'll have to defer to Kevin on this because he's the expert on it. I'll just say that it's been interesting to see someone out there like that. Um, I think we have, I mean, when you think about the county executive, the superintendent, and the mayor, I think we have three very strong leaders who are not afraid to mix it up in, in a good way in terms of making hard decisions and bringing the community together. And I think it's kind of a unique moment right now. Wouldn't you agree, Kevin, I, I, I in terms of what's that. going I, on? But what do, what do you think about Shemmer? You work with him. You, I mean, you're with him almost daily at City Hall. The visibility has been a, a plus for that administration. There's a lot of energy with that administration. There's still a learning curve with that administration in terms of, of putting policy in place and those kinds of things. But I just think I think that they have a plan. I think that they, you know, whether it's ultimately going to succeed or not is a different thing. But they, but they have a plan and they're engaging residents in their plan. And I think that's, that's a huge difference that we see right now. Mm -hmm. See, you represent two demographics that I feel felt most disenfranchised with the last administration, African-Americans and some of our younger brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. When you look at the, the, the work that this mayor is doing and, and his genuine desire, at least it seems, to engage the community, what feeling does it give you? And what are you hearing from people in your age demographic? Well, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of positive things about this whole administration. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I've had an opportunity to actually meet Joe, and uh, I've just heard nothing but great things, great things. And I've always been uh, apprehensive when it came to politics, just because it's, it's there's so many opinions, you know what I'm saying? And everybody's always, you know, fighting one another because of their political views and whatnot. But it seems like with him, you know, piggybacking off of what they were saying, like the energy just seems very positive, and it does seem like he has a plan. And... Um, People from my my peer group, I think they're they're hopeful. Um, they see a brighter future for the community, and um, I mean, I, hopefully everything you know pans out. Um, I don't know exactly what the ultimate goal is because I've been like kind of astray from it. But from what I've been hearing, I think things are going to go in a better direction. Hopefully, so you know I'm gonna stay tuned and, and see what's going on. Like I said, I, I usually stay away from politics because of how nasty it can get. But I'm feeling a very good vibe from this guy and his whole team. Mm -hmm. The whole key in politics, and I, no, I no, just wanted to throw this in, is can you build consensus? Can you build mm -hmm. coalitions? Mm -hmm. Can you move the ball? And that's what we're going to have to see you know, with this administration and, and the region in general. I mean, can you, can you get across a goal line? Can you, can you move the ball? Can you get things to – the point where where you can put your plans in place. Mm -hmm. You got to get people to believe, right? Especially and my that's a big age part group. of it. And, and yeah, yeah, and and younger, you know, because a lot of my peer groups and a lot of uh, young African Americans, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on down, you know, on State Street or at City Hall. They don't know, you know, these these plans, these these uh, these revenues that are are that are being tossed around. These ideas, they don't know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just connected to their own lives. So if Joe can just reach out to everybody, the, the city of Erie, not just certain parties. And I'm not saying he's doing that, but if he can reach out to everybody and get us all in tune, then that would be great. Mm -hmm. Because we need to know about these things, you know, because we don't truly know how we're affected by that. We think we're not affected, but we are. So hopefully um, Joe can just get that across and try to reach out to everybody, all demographics of Erie and, and 
we'll see what happens. Well, let me stay with you for just a second, C, because you know, you're an artist. Yeah. You're a hip-hop artist. You write about things in community as well. Mm. And you're a community-minded guy. I know a little bit about you personally. Yeah. Storied grandmother. I mean, your grandmother's a wonderful artist and has a huge following in the city. And so I think for your age, man, there's a wisdom about you. What are you, what's your feeling for your demographic, man? Is this the time that you think that generation is going to start taking their place in community? Because I know in the past it's been kind of an older guys club. Mm -hmm. Is there a hopeful feeling there? Is it kind of, you know, trepidation? Like, I don't know if this is the time. Is it that time for the younger generation now? Uh, it's, it's been time. It's been time. But honestly, on a bigger note, I think, you know, aside from what Joe and his administration is trying to do, I think it's up to all of us to take responsibility. You know, if you want to see change, you have to be the change. It's, it's up to us. You know, we don't realize how powerful we are as a community because there's more of us than there is of them. You know, the people who, you know, the, the white wigs of the, of the community. So we have to really take a step forward and put our foot down and start making some changes ourselves and stop always depending on somebody in a suit and tie. You know what I mean? To me, that's a plus. You know, we need some type of leadership, some type of a main direction, but at the same time, we have to get up off of our butts and do something, mm -hmm. you know, within our neighborhoods, within our communities. We, we're always complaining about what's going on, but we're never really doing anything. We're never taking any initiative. Mm -hmm. It's up to us. You know, these, these neighborhoods, you know, I don't care where you live at, we have to come together and take a stand and start making some progress ourselves. If we see a problem, you know, let's not just complain about it. Let's discuss it. Let's devise a plan. Let's take it to whoever and get it done. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it's really that hard. I think we're just very content with where we're at. And um, hopefully with a person like Joe, we can really look up to him and really start taking action. All right. And we can just all work together. Okay. So on the larger scale, going back to the 2018 stories, we had a president visit Erie, Pennsylvania. All right. Ed, let's start with you on that. Big deal, regardless of who the sitting president is, to come to Erie, PA. What was the environment like for you on that? Well, once again, I'm going to have to defer to Kevin on that. Um, <laughs> Because he was there, and um, so Kev, when it, when you were there, right, with a number of I, other reporters? I, I covered the rally with a number of other reporters. Uh, the atmosphere was it, was, it was different. It was, there was a lot of energy for the, the, the people who supported him. There were, there were some protesters outside the arena, although most of what I was doing, I was basically writing the main story on what Trump had to say at that particular rally. And, you know, obviously, I was trying to lock in because we know that this particular president has had a history of, of pretty much saying anything at these rallies that could become, you know, a national story. So I was trying to lock in on that. But it was, it was interesting to see how much of a hold he had on that group uh, that, that attended. It was interesting for me to see how many young people were there. I mean, kids. It was interesting to me that that so many people just kind of hung on every word that he had to say, and it wasn't so much that that, the, that what he had to say was about particular policy or or eerie in general, other than the sand comments. Mm. But it was just interesting to see how much just fervent support there was. For, for this particular president at this particular rally. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and, you know, the media is kind of kept in one area. Uh, we, y you don't get to kind of roam the crowd like you could at a lot of political rallies and talk to people about what you think. So it was, you know, it's, it's a different environment than any other political rally I've ever covered, and I've covered them for a lot of different presidential and, and 
candidates for other offices. Mm -hmm. So, Ed, you didn't cover this, but obviously you're running with journalists and everything else. So just what was the feedback that you heard from, um, from your perspective about that visit? Well, just, I mean, like Kevin said, just almost like the cult of personality around the president. I mean, no matter what you think about the president, it was a huge event. And to see that many people come down, I mean, how many people, Kevin? It was one of the largest well, there was, events. Uh, what, 8,000 in right. Roughly. Right. So. And in the New York Times, Peter Baker, he wrote a piece about what was said in Erie, kind of used Erie and some other stops, right. kind of set forth the template. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but it, I, I, I think just from a, from a sociological standpoint, it's just fascinating. I mean, I did cover, it's not the president, but when Betsy DeVos came to Piper mm -hmm. Burley, I covered that. And it was just, I mean, the divide that you can see is just really... You see it up front, and it's really something in terms of, you know, what people think about the administration or where the country's going. But you, you see it right there with the, uh, right. I mean, the protesters, and the demonstrators for Betsy DeVos. I mean, they were great. I mean, they were very peaceful. There were a few of them at the end that got kind of, it got kind of heated. But it was just really, I don't think I've ever, I've, I've never seen anything like it when you have an administration, um, and we've had secretaries and right. stuff come. I've just never seen. The amount of um, the amount of interest, a, and then just the level of hostility. Well, which, what do you? No, think, I, I was gonna, just going to jump on one other point. And when you talk about level of interest and kind of that polarization and, and hostility, you know, I've written the story. I wrote the story about the the city requesting thirty five thousand dollars in change reimbursement from the Trump campaign mm -hmm. for the public safety related costs related to that event, which the city's position and Mayor Schember's position is, this was a strictly political rally. This was something that we should be reimbursed for. This was money we shouldn't have had to spend. And the emails and the phone calls that I get got, of the two stories I wrote about this, because the city still hasn't heard anything yet, are so divided. I mean, the, the people who are pro-Trump just want nothing to do with that, even though these are taxpayer funds, and many of them are on the hook for it. They, they want nothing to do with that. They, well, did every other president had to pay this? Did every other, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see, as you mentioned, cold personality, it's fascinating to see how just polarizing some of this stuff is, and then mm -hmm. it, it, it's amazing. And this kind of leads to your commentary on one of the reasons why many people are just kind of like hands off. Right, mm -hmm. right, I remember that day, and it was, uh, for me, it was like a black cloud. Like, I felt a lot of negativity going on. I heard that there were people out there um, saying certain things that weren't uh, appropriate due to uh, Trump being in town and whatnot. Um, and I get it. If that's who you voted for and if that's who you stand by, like, by all means, that's, that's you. But uh, I know for a lot of people in my peer group and even a little older, you know, we don't necessarily get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Trump is bringing the bad out of a lot of people. And he's bringing out like the, the the inner racist, the inner bigot out of a lot of people, and people are starting to you know fly off the handle with what they're saying, and they they feel like they can just say anything to anybody because of this one guy. Like he's he's powerful, he's very he's powerful. <laughs> you know, yeah, he is, but you know, he's a different kind of president. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like he's something that we've I, I want to say something that we've seen before, but probably not to this magnitude. Mm -hmm. And he got this country in an uproar, but it has also opened up discussion. It has also uh, made a lot of people um, talk about certain views, whether it's uh, race or religion or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, that's I mean that's kind of positive on, on that note, but uh, 
that day for me was just heavy. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to be anywhere near that rally because there was so much going on. And, you know, you had people who were pro-Trump, people who were anti-Trump just going at it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was an event. And, you know, as a president, you have to do that run and, you know, stop here and there to, to, to uh, make your testimony. But I just feel like it was just an ugly day. Mm. It was an ugly day. You know, to, to go back to City Hall for a minute or two, so we're talk, the midterms was a big deal, but I'm going to mm-hmm. hone in on something specifically because we're running short on time. Sure. A lot of people applying for the city council position to finish out Bob Mursky's right. term. Speak on that a little bit before we close. Uh, there were roughly 50 uh, applications for this position. I believe that the council, you know, after they get a little bit of distance with this budget, because the budget deliberations are something that's been taking up a lot of their time, I believe council's going to start kind of whittling that list down to to uh, come up with a candidate. The, the sitting members of council, the remaining members of council, get to make that choice mm-hmm. for somebody to fill in the remainder of, of Bob's term, which I believe expires at the end of next year. That particular seat, it'll be interesting because that seat will be on the ballot this year, I believe. So, you know, whoever's appointed, will they run, you know, for a full four-year term? Right. Or is it somebody that just wants to kind of be a temporary, a temporary piece there? And I, I'm sure we'll, we'll, that seat will draw a lot of interest, whether it be for uh, what has with the appointments or for a four-year term. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ed, 2018, we're coming to a close. In your opinion, and you two give this some thought as well as we uh, head towards the finish line of this show, what are we ushering in, in your opinion, for 2019? Are there some indicators that you've seen that kind of gives us a glimpse into 19 and what we can expect as a community? Well, I think Kevin, both Kevin and C touched on it, but right now, we've written a lot about this, Erie really doesn't have a choice. I mean, this is, as Kevin's written about so many times, Pat Howard, Lisa Thompson, that this is a, and see you said it, this is a particular moment in time for this city where you have all these things going on, you have the opportunity zones, all these, everything coalescing. And I think there's a, 19 will be interesting to see how everything comes together and where Erie goes because I think it'll be a critical year in terms of all these economic development issues and certainly for the school district which i cover it'll be a critical year because they'll be implementing the state mandated plan they have a lot of things going on but overall the next couple years are going to be i think looking back in 10 20 years what what happens now is going to be pivotal pivotal for for where their city goes would you say that kevin would absolutely agree it'll also be interesting too to see with with this city budget process and how it's played out and the, the deficits they're dealing with, and they're dealing with some of the same kind of structural issues you see in, in a school district, how, how does city government move forward trying to put a lot of this stuff in place but trying to manage their finances and, and deal with structural deficiencies in the way they do business, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Based on everything you've seen, see, where, where is this going in your opinion for 19? Um, I'm not for sure. It can go, it can go left, it can go right. Um, based off what they, they were saying, we do need some form of structure. I think we know what the answer is. We, we, we know um, what needs to be done. It's just how do we do it? How do we engage? How do we come up with a, a substantial plan in order to, you know, get our school district on track, uh, get these communities on track? You know what I'm saying? So we definitely need a plan and just push forward with that. Um, we, we just have to care enough, mm-hmm. you know, all of us, whether you're a politician or you're just, you know, somebody of the community, we just have to have a big heart and really just 
you know, get things done mm-hmm. and really and really talk amongst one, one another. This kind of speaks to uh, Times News' next initiative. You know, somebody touch on that real quick before we close. I know that you're more interested, not that you haven't been in the past, more intentional about the everyday voices and how that plays into the public dialogue. What is this initiative about and how is that playing out thus far? Well, with the Erie Next initiative, and I'm one of the, the lead writers for that, we, we, we take a look at a lot of issues affecting this region and, and its future. And, you know, we tr- obviously, as in all journalism, we try to hold people accountable. But we really want to explain those issues, do a lot of explanatory journalism, and benchmark things, too, whether it's a plan or, or you know, some development proposal or this big project. We, we don't want to just explain it and let it sit. We want to come back and benchmark what kind of progress has been made on those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You want to touch on that a little bit? A lot of it, when Kevin's done and Jim Martin, Matt Rink works on that, Lisa Thompson works on it with him. It's just keeping, it's been great because it it keeps a lot of these issues up front so people can continue to follow them. And it kind of catalogs everything that's going on because there's just so much happening. I mean, every day in the paper, there's like another grant or another, which is great, but keeping track of all that and making sure, really, like Kevin said, trying to keep everything accountable so to make sure everything's working together in a way that's going to advance the community rather than, like C said, you know, turf battles or anything like that. You want to, you want to see everything kind of working together, and that's what Kevin's really been looking at. It feels like the, time has been dig- the Times has been digging in a little bit more, you know, in recent years or in recent times, anyways, where that's concerned. So, listen, thank you guys so much for coming yeah, on the show. My man, C. Brown, sure. Kevin Flowers, Ed Pelotella. Um, Jerry Clark, thanks Jerry for coming on the show as well and just talking about all of these different pivotal moments in 2018. It's been an exciting year, fellas. It really has been. And I'm anxious to see what 2019 holds. And no doubt that this cast will play a large part in much of what we see and much of what we read in Erie, PA in 2019. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for viewing. Next on WQLN, tune in next time as we'll talk about more issues that affect Erie. Uh, You can listen every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3 FM. Uh, You can watch live on Facebook at our page, Facebook Live, on uh, Next with Marcus Atkinson on WQLN. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.